Welcome back for Mum Talk Series 6, hosted by myself, Emma Jolin, mum to Amandine, who was born in September 2018. If you are new here on this podcast, I share my journey as a mum, from pregnancy to life now with a baby, sharing all the highs and all the lows. As we go through this series, I will be joined by knowledgeable guests, some experts in their field, and also mums and dads sharing their experience of pregnancy and parenthood. As always, you can trust in Mum Talk to be honest, real and informative and provide plenty of nod along and me too moments. Wherever you may be, thank you for listening and enjoy being part of today's conversation. So today on the podcast, I want to welcome a very special guest who has taken time out of her incredibly busy period at the moment to talk with us, Dr. Laura Lenehan, who is a GP in Galloway, um, Ireland. And we are bringing this bonus episode to you today to go through your questions and to discuss the topic on everyone's mind, coronavirus. Hi, Laura. Hi, Emma. How are you? Thank you so much for having me. My absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on. So just to give us a little bit of background, you are, of course, a GP. Is that right? In the HSE in Ireland? Yeah, so the system is slightly different, but I'm a GP registrar. I'm in my last couple of weeks of training here um, in Ireland. So I work for the HSE now at the minute. Yeah, it's different to the NHS, but yes, that's correct, (laughs) if you like. And you are pregnant yourself. I am. I am 32 weeks pregnant on my third child. And I have two little girls, Harper, who's three, and Indy who is two, who are keeping me on my toes at the minute. Yeah, I bet. (laughs) (laughs) How are you finding being at home with them? Are you homeschooling or? No, thankfully, um, I suppose they're too young, really. Harper goes to Montessori for three hours a day, usually. Mm -hmm. um, And then they're with a childminder in her house, but she um, isn't taking them at the minute. So as of this week, we have another girl who was working in a creche, but obviously they've been closed here for the past two weeks. So she's coming in um, during the week so that Ross and I can continue to work for the time being. So tell people what it's like to be on the front line right now and of course pregnant because the guidelines are changing all the time, aren't they, around working and, and being pregnant and I'm assuming it's similar with the, with UK and Ireland? It's, quite, it's actually slightly different now, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. So in the UK... Um, the government obviously have put pregnant women into a vulnerable group. Mm. Um, So they say you should social distance, you know, to the maximum, work from home as much as you can. And then the Royal College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists issued new guidelines last week um, that again divided pregnant healthcare women into two groups. So under 28 weeks, so your first and second trimester, and then over 28 weeks. And the guidance for them was if you're over 28 weeks, which is where I would fall into, you should be working from home, which I suppose isn't really possible in the NHS or the HSE, Mm. um, and trying to stay away from patients as much as possible. And in the first and second trimester, you you can be at work and be patient-facing, but with socially distant measures in place, whatever that means, because there's no way I could do my job and be socially distant. I wouldn't be able to examine people. No. But for us here, so I'm still on the training scheme. So the ICGP, which is the Irish College of General Practitioners, actually released guidelines last week to say that all pregnant GPs should be taken from a patient-facing role um, and put onto telephone triage or paperwork. So 
our jobs have significantly changed in the past, was it the beginning of last week, I think. Um, so we're not, the, the surgeries are basically closed here now. We're not really seeing any patients and all our appointments are by telephone, um, oh. which is a weird way to do medicine. And um, up until that, I had been seeing patients and I was using personal protective equipment um, that we had because we had some supplied to us just with everyone really, because I suppose there is community transmission here, even though it's, it's still low, we think within the community, um, it's just a scary time. And being pregnant, you're anxious anyways, right? And, and mm. during this pregnancy, especially and when you're working in GP, I mean, I must wash my hands about 50 times a day anyways and, and wipe down all my surfaces, you know, with wipes to make sure that I don't pick up anything because I don't want to get sick in pregnancy. So when you add in the anxiety over COVID-19, it's, um, yeah, it's, it's certainly an interesting time. And then doing... So triaging patients, so everyone is worried, right? Not just me or pregnant women, everyone is worried. So everyone is ringing up with the slightest little sniffle and afraid that it might be um, COVID-19. So so let's recap yeah. for everyone listening. And I know it's being drummed into our heads, but it's no harm to go over it at all again. What are the symptoms of COVID-19? So... According to the WHO and the UK guidance and the Irish guidance, the, the, the main symptoms are a fever of over 38 degrees. So if you don't have a thermometer in your house, I think everyone should go out and get one. Mm-hmm. And then respiratory symptoms. So cough, shortness of breath um, would be the two main ones. And the cough can be a dry cough or um, a productive cough where you're getting sputum up. Now, there are a variety of of Mm. other symptoms that fulfill the criteria. And the guidelines in Ireland and England differ slightly in this regard with with regards to what you should do. Um, But so in England, it's a new cough of half day's duration or longer on a fever. With or without a fever, you should be self-isolating. In Ireland, we're a lot more uh, all-inclusive. So actually, if you have any symptoms of an upper respiratory tract infection, such as runny nose or sore throat, you should be self-isolating. We're, and then in Ireland, we're testing versus you're not testing as much in the community in England. So there, there are some slight differences. Mm, that's really interesting, isn't it? How it, it is, can vary yeah. so much when we're so close. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. The English <laughs> seem to have kind of, we're following WHO guidelines very much to the book um, point to point, whereas the UK have slightly changed and done their own kind of thing. Um, that's where the differences are coming in I think and it's really tricky I mean as 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 both being parents um <laughs> this time of year you know our kids can get colds and have sniffles one Absolutely. day and then randomly throw a temperature for an hour or two because of teeth perhaps and then we're thinking I've had lots of questions saying well obviously I can't answer them I'm, I'm not even close to <laughs> being a doctor but um I, my child had a temperature for literally an hour pretty sure it's teething does that mean I need to self-isolate think little Mm. things like this I mean are we meant to be self-isolating if it's literally just an hour of fever or yeah I mean so first of all one point to clarify you will never get a fever with teething that that should really that's interesting yeah yeah so no so a fever and teething don't go hand in hand often You'll think they're teething because they have a, an ear infection or or vice versa. But teething mm. in and of itself will not cause a fever. Although I've been convinced 
myself that it does. It, it might be that they get two things at once, but in the, the literature, the research, the guidelines, everything, teething it will not cause a fever. So it's tough, isn't it? And kids are tough. And the problem with children is that certainly they're not getting disease to the extent that adults are. They don't get mm. serious disease and they could present with a very mild case of coronavirus. And could that um, look like a cold in a child? Yeah, yeah, one hundred percent. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. So therein lies the biggest issue, mm. and that's why we close schools early here. So we're we're two weeks ahead of you, nearly or a week and a half ahead of you, I think, on the school closures, and um, because you know they they talk about this term super spreaders. It's just that the kids you won't necessarily realise that they have coronavirus the way that adults do. So when my advice at the minute to, to patients that ring me, and obviously not giving individual medical advice to anyone here, but my advice is that if you're afraid that your kids on, are unwell, you should be self-isolating. We're self-isolating for 14 days here. Um, I know it's seven days if one person is sick in, in a household and then 14 days for the rest of the household in the UK. So it's slightly different, but certainly, and, and I suppose with guidelines, we should all be self-isolating now, right? With Yeah. Uh, you know, not leaving your house. So if anyone in the house is sick, the safest way to protect everyone. And the great thing about this disease is that we have the power to stop it in its tracks. And um, so the safest way to protect everyone, all your loved ones, is to self-isolate to a certain extent, certainly if, if someone is sick and stay at home and not go out and, and not spread those germs just in case. And again, the big issue is that it, is it could just be a cold, you know, mm. or it could be the flu. Like in where I am here, we're actually testing people for the flu and we've had lots of positive influenza Bs. So, you know, it, it's extremely difficult to know. Um, but for the safety of everyone and for the safety, especially of our loved ones and the elderly population, the most sensible thing to do is to isolate. Absolutely. So with regards to children, just whilst we're on the topic... Yes. Of course, your surgeries are essentially closed, GP surgeries. I think ours are? Oh. I think so too, yes, in the UK, yeah. That's I got a, yeah, I got a text from our doctor's surgery saying, please call, don't don't come in, and we, we're yes. not really open for appointments, it's phone call appointments only. But if, for instance, I mean, a couple of weeks ago, uh, Amandine had this horrendous rash, and yeah. it was awful. It was at the point where we could still go to the GP. I was lucky enough that the GP gave us uh, an emergency appointment, and we went in, because it was literally one of those horrible rashes that was spreading in front of my eyes. Um, yes, yeah. And it was the first time that had ever happened. But if something like that is happening, or at, at what point do we need to be um, seeking medical attention for our little ones as far as, you know, going to the GP or going to the emergency centre? Because, of course, everyone is so overrun at the moment, yet it's Absolutely. very easy, especially as a new mum, to kind of think, oh, I really need to see someone. I, I really need 100%. to see someone when it could just be something you know, viral, like our rash turned out to just be a viral rash, but I was panicking. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and and that's so worrisome for new mums, okay? And and the other worry then is that they don't want to come to the GP surgery because yeah. they're afraid they might pick up coronavirus. So what I would say, the most important thing to remember in all of this is that sickness, medicine doesn't stop. Mm. It doesn't care that the coronavirus is here. You know, people are still going to get sick. Now, kids could, should be picking up less and less viral infections because technically they're not mingling with anyone mm. else. But 
if you're worried about your child, you need to ring your GP surgery. Absolutely, 100%. And you need to chat to them on the phone and you need to make a decision then with your GP as to whether you need to come in to be seen. Some GP services here are offering video consultations. Oh, wow. Some are, yeah, or some are seeing kids, you know. So if we had someone with a rash, if we could send in a photo and we were happy with that, then that might be what we would do. Or, you know, we might Skype them or we might bring them in if we felt we were worried about them. And we would try and kind of bring, I mean, we're not seeing any patients currently with respiratory symptoms. So, you know, we're trying to keep them away as much as possible. So we would be, you know, everyone sits in the car park, we ring them then when we're ready to see them and bring directly into the doctor's room and then they leave the doctor's room again. So keeping everyone within socially distant distances, so two meters apart, if possible. Um, and if not, we're wearing personal protective equipment. So if you're worried about your children, it's still so important to contact your GP and be seen. Yes. And same goes for, you know, vaccinations. Like if this epidemic has shown, a pandemic has shown us anything, it's that, you know, how important are vaccinations? Imagine if we could vaccinate people for this, you know, this mm. would be happening. So Children still need to get vaccinations as long as they're well and no one in the house is isolating or has been told to isolate or is awaiting a test. They should be brought for um, vaccinations. And again, you know, waiting in the car, being brought in just at the right time. I mean, we don't want to miss those and we don't. We have a, you know, measles outbreak here and our mumps outbreak here in Ireland at the minute, you know, so we, we need to vaccinate our children as well. So medicine doesn't stop just because there's a pandemic a pandemic here, unfortunately. No, no, of course not. So if you think you have suspected coronavirus um, in your child and they are running a high fever, um, what is the best way to treat? Uh, Is the treatment the same for children and for adults? Absolutely, yeah. So it's a viral illness. So technically there's no, you know, antibiotics aren't going to do anything. So it's supportive measures would be how we we would describe it. So... um, in the UK, actually, the guidance is slightly different because the UK government have come out and said not to use ibuprofen um, or norepinephrine. So you should only be using um, paracetamol or Calpol, which is the brand name, to bring down the fever and to keep the child um, happy, just like you would with any other viral illness or head cold. Mm-hmm. And then lots of fluids, um, you know, keeping an eye on the child, checking you know, I talk a lot on my Instagram about keeping an eye on their respiratory rate and their breathing and to make sure that they're not doing any extra work. So then you need to be looking out for signs that they're becoming unwell. So are they lethargic or not? Food, food-wise, food doesn't matter. I don't mind if a child doesn't eat for three or four days. They'll make up for that. But as long as they're taking fluids and having wet nappies or weeing a lot, that's very reassuring and that they're not becoming too drowsy. Um and and when should then. Sorry, go on, sorry. No, that's just if you're worried, then you need to contact the GP, you know. And alarm bells as far as the wet nappies, is it? Is it no wet nappy in 12 hours, six hours? Yes, yeah. Um, oh, God, I actually don't know the exact. Is that terrible? So, um, they, I mean, normally they'd be wetting a nappy every three or four hours, right? Yeah. So if I had gone 12 hours without a wet nappy, I'd be worried, yes. You know your um, child, and if they're you? having. Absolutely. You see, that's the thing. And, and every child is is different. Mm. You know, even if I look at my two, Harper might wee only three times in a day, whereas Indy would do, you know, 12 wees. So it's very different. But you can even measure if the nappies aren't as wet as they were, you know, that those kind of things are important to look out for as well. 
And all of this stuff you can discuss with your GP if you need to over the phone. Absolutely, yeah. So same if, oh, one last thing on children. If they have a persistent cough and, you know, they're really not sleeping, and is there anything you can suggest to help them with, with coughs? I mean, a, a cough medicines are out for children, aren't they? It's not, not some, a good... Some are licensed now. Um, so I'm not sure about the brand names in the UK now, unfortunately, but there's one here called Bronco Stop, which has glycerin and stuff in it and marshmallow extract, I think, which is just a soothing mixture. Right. The same as honey and lemon in a drink. And, and that's actually proven. And it's in the NICE guidelines, which are UK guidelines um, to help children with a cough. And then it's a, if it's a productive cough, if they're getting up sputum, they can use um, Exputex. Do you guys have that? Is that the same name there? I think I've never it is. heard of it, actually. Sure. Yeah. Sorry. Now it's, um, I'm not great on the brand names in the UK. I I worked there for six months, but in, in adult medicine. So, um, yeah, so there there are options. And again, your pharmacist will be able to help you with that. Mm -hmm. You shouldn't be attending your pharmacy if you're sick or unwell, but you could certainly ring up over the phone and ask for advice and get someone to pick them up for you. Yeah. And of course, you know, our communities are really starting to come together, but I'm I'm sure they are over there as well, but they are here in that if you are sick, do call somebody else to go and get that Absolutely. medicine. Yeah, yeah, which is great. Isn't it great to see everyone coming together? Like, I think that's amazing. Mm, it's lovely. I mean, I remember when I was pregnant and so many people would say to me, it's not like it used to be where you could just knock on the next door neighbor's door and ask them for advice if they've had kids. And But I really feel like this is bringing us back together. Yeah, um, it's it'd be interesting to see what the world is going to be like in mm. a year's time. Certainly, I think medicine will have changed hugely. Um, but will it have changed us? I mean, I, we, we've gone into a semi kind of lockdown like you guys, and I, I envisage it lasting for maybe three months, probably realistically. So it, it certainly will have changed the way we interact, mm. um, the way we go about our daily lives kind of sad to think because it's it's great isn't it I'm spending so much time with my children and I've done so many different arts and crafts with them in the last you know two weeks alone so it's um it's a nice change Mm. it's definitely teaching us some lessons just to slow down isn't it yes yeah yeah (laughs) well some of us of course not the um not the health services no um so as far as it's finished this treatment side of things as far as treatment for yourself if you have um suspected coronavirus pretty much the same as children yes so just paracetamol they don't recommend using ibuprofen in the uk um and then if so people usually deteriorate around day five or day six according to most of the research that's out there it can be as late as day eight or nine so that would be shortness of breath or chest pain worsening cough um, and I think it's important to look out for those things um, and contact the medical services then if needs be. So you guys have 111 um, mm-hmm. or the nurse, there's a nurse helpline in the UK as well, isn't there, that you can ring? Mm-hmm. Um, is that through 111? It is. I think it is, yeah. Yes, yeah. Um, and then, yeah, so and, and apart from that, just paracetamol, lots of fluids and take it easy. Mm-hmm. And then if you're on regular medications, it's really important to continue to take your regular medications throughout of all of this or contact your GP if you're unsure. For example, say if you have asthma or uh, chronic obstructive airways disease, you should be taking your, your medications regularly. There are some concerns around blood pressure medications, heart medications, but again, you should continue taking them unless um, told not to by your GP and the same with immunosuppressants. So 
you know, you might have people with psoriasis or um, inflammatory bowel disease who might be on um, immunosuppressants. And if you feel, if those people feel that they get unwell, they should contact their GP for advice. Okay. So moving on to um, coronavirus in pregnancy. Now, I have received so many messages, as I am sure you have, and of course you are in it yourself. Um, Anxiousness, anxiety levels are huge, it seems, quite understandably, around uh, being pregnant at this time, especially if you're coming into your third trimester. Are you able to share with us uh, any evidence-based um, information about uh, coronavirus and pregnancy and perhaps also go on to share a little bit about what we talked about earlier um, about hospital and birth. Yeah, so oh, so the issue with coronavirus and pregnancy is that we have so little information, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, there's like two case studies that came out of China, one with six people and one with three pregnant women and that's all we know that's all that's in the literature and I I check it every day because I was quite shocked by the UK's um, announcement that they were putting pregnant women into I mean not shocked I think it's a good thing because we don't know enough that's their thinking behind it but there's nothing in the literature to say that pregnant women are more at risk and there was six women who delivered via c-section in the in China and they had no um bad outcomes, if you like, and there was no evidence of transmission from mum to baby. There is talk that there is a case of transmission now, but it's not in the literature. Um, And there's obviously lots of talk about two serious cases, one in the UK and one elsewhere, but none of that is confirmed yet. So while I'm all about evidence-based medicine, unfortunately, with coronavirus and pregnancy, there's very little. Um, And therein lies the problem. So the UK have decided to make pregnant women a vulnerable group to keep them safe and to keep them protected because we don't want anything to happen to our pregnant women, obviously. Mm. Um, There are some reports that it can cause uh, fetal distress in labour and that it um, it might affect fetal growth. So if you get it in the third trimester and you get over it or even the second, you would probably be monitored a bit more regularly according to the guidelines with regards to growth scans. Um, and there is some, there's one report of um, going into uh, labour early. But again, whether that was due to coronavirus or yeah. not, it's impossible to say. Yeah. Um, and then with early pregnancy, the issue is we don't know. Okay, so because anyone who's in early pregnancy has, because this is only going on for three or four months now, hasn't obviously delivered yet. So there's no conclusive evidence to say that it causes any issues. Um, the other coronaviruses, such as SARS and MERS, did cause issues in the past. Um, and for that reason, there are, you know, that's probably one of the reasons that they've put pregnant women into the vulnerable group. And it's also one of the reasons I assume that um, the European, your CHE, I think, um, they have advised that any fertility treatments are put on hold um, Mm. currently, which is really sad for some people who are in the midst of it. Um, But they just don't want to take any chances because we know so little about this virus. Mm, Absolutely. Just hard. That must be incredibly hard. And 
with regards to conception things we're just talking about that na- naturally um what's i had noticed that brooke put something on her instagram yeah about, um, yeah she did <laughs> i got asked that question a lot yes and, and i didn't answer because there's no guidelines um and i saw what brooke, brooke shared and, and i shared it on my page as well so her thinking is and i i agree with it completely i suppose um we don't know what will happen. So mm-hmm. if you can wait to conceive, then that probably makes sense to do that. Um, you you know, there are lots of increased risks in early pregnancy. One in four women will miscarry. So is this a time that you want to be, you know, when, when we see this surge, say, that we're expecting in the hospitals, is that a time that you want to be going into the hospitals? Because they're going to be extremely busy you know is it a time that you want to be admitted to hospital for fluid rehydration if you're suffering with hyperemesis because of the risks of catching coronavirus and obviously one of the big risks was that certainly in early pregnancy is that if you get it it would cause quite a high fever and it is known that fever in early pregnancy can cause miscarriage so she while none of us can give the advice I agree with what she has said is that you know you should probably consider delaying it at the minute if you can you know um to a certain extent unless you're happy with all of these risks because it's just a a much more you know there's much more risks associated with everything now so even if you're just a heart attack or anything happens now you're you know the the hospitals are going to be stretched um for the next 12 months I suppose if not if not longer I don't know um, and so it's it's worth just taking all that into consideration. Absolutely. So which is a really d- terrible advice to give, and I I don't know. Like I'm 38, and mm-hmm. if I was to, if I you know was say seven months ago, would mm-hmm. I not have a baby because I really want to? I don't know. I, that's a really difficult decision to make. No one can make it for you. You know. No, do you want to take your chances you're giving people the information and as is Brooke and that's all you can do isn't it and then it's up to up to those to up to others to make that decision yes um I mean we've we've been as my listeners will know we've been trying for like the last six months to conceive for a second time and first time around we found it super easy like no problems whatsoever we were incredibly lucky this time around we're really we're struggling um and Sorry to hear that. That's tough to go through as well. Oh, thank you. It is, but and and now we're kind of thinking, well, do we keep going because it might not happen, but we just want to keep kind of trying to hope things get onto the right track, or do we stop completely? Or and we're kind of thinking, what do we do? (laughs) Yeah, Um, yeah. so that's really tricky one because then you could end up leaving it a year and then starting up again, and then you know maybe it takes a while for things to get going again. I, I don't know. Um, yeah. so that's that's it's it's a really really difficult place to be in but I can't imagine it's a very nice you know I, I can't imagine what the people going through fertility treatment must be feeling either yes yeah yeah, absolutely. So as far as um, anxiousness around hospitals and birth, I know our systems are very different and actually each individual hospital, when I've shared about birthing experiences before, you know, we've made it very clear that each individual hospital is very, very different. So it's very hard to give advice. But yeah. is there anything that you can say to mums who are pregnant um, just to give them a, a, a little bit of reassurance? Because this is, as you well know, a very unsure time for anyone who is pregnant right now, too. Absolutely. So 
Oh, it's a tough one. So as you said, just with that caveat that every hospital and birthing centre is going to be slightly different, but the health of and, and welfare of mum and baby is what's paramount in these cases. And that's what they're going, they're going to try and protect, you know, um, first and foremost. So mm. as much as they can, they will do everything in their, you know, everything possible to keep mum and baby safe. Um, at the minute, I, as far as I'm aware, there's no issues with husbands, partners being on labour wards and whatnot to for um, deliveries in the UK. In Ireland, it's changed slightly. They're not allowed in until active stages of labour. So if you're in for 48 hours beforehand, your husband won't be present for that, but they will be allowed, excuse me, onto the labour ward when you're actively pushing. Um and I think every hospital is going to change its guidance. And I think over the next few months, this will evolve as well. But they mm-hmm. will do everything in their power to have dad there for you. And the thinking behind it is to keep you safe, to keep baby safe and to keep the staff safe as well. Because obviously this, the hospital systems are going to be stretched and they need, so they need everyone there that they can have there. And they don't want to have a whole labour ward room or, or theatre room of staff out because that's going to put them then make them even more stretched. Mm. So they're going to do everything they can to get mom, baby and dad through this as safely as possible. I think there will be lots of changes to routine antenatal appointments. Um, some of them will be done over the phone. Um, I know certain things, certainly in Ireland, birthing pools are out now as far as I'm aware um, from the hospitals that I've seen guidelines from. So I think for mums at this time, myself included, it's really important to be having discussions with your antenatal provider about your birthing plans. I wouldn't, I don't think it's a sensible plan at the minute to go in with a very set plan in your head because given the pressures, I just don't know that that is definitely going to be 100% possible. Mm-hmm. It might be, but I think it's more sensible to be prepared and to talk with your midwife or consultant prior to the birth and know, you know, what are they making any changes or is it all going ahead as planned or what what might be possible. And um, if you have COVID-19 and obviously you go into labor, then that will change things significantly. And, um, you know, there's no, as I said previously, there's nothing to say that baby would necessarily be infected and, and they're certainly not separating mums and babies. That's really important to point out that mm. that is nowhere in the guidelines. They want to keep mum and baby together unless obviously mum becomes really unwell or baby becomes really unwell and then they need to be separated to be treated, uh, you know, um, somewhere else. And that certainly is something that could happen. But if you have a mild case of COVID-19, there's no nothing to say that you can't have baby in the room with you. You can breastfeed. They may be kept in an incubator versus, you know, on you all the time. But <clears throat> again, different trusts will have different guidelines Um based on the stage of the pandemic we're at. But I think I appreciate it, right? I'm 32 weeks. I was informed this week that Ross won't be in theatre with me. So I'm having an elective section planned for seven weeks time. Um, It's my third. Ross is normally right there beside me, you know, waiting in the, the ward with me beforehand, which I find quite I find that quite an anxious time. And, and even mm. on the table then when you're being operated on, um, so he won't be there. He won't be allowed into the recovery room either. And he's not allowed on the postnatal ward. So um, he can literally walk me from 
not walk me, but walk beside my trolley while I moved from theatre to the postnatal ward. So like two minutes. Um, so I think wow. to be, pre- yeah, to be prepared is really important. Yes. There's, there's no point in freaking out, you know, and I, I don't say that flippantly because I, I appreciate the situation that people are in. Um, this is all to protect you and baby. Um, so we just need to be as prepared as we can be. And I think so talking to your providers is really important. Having a, a loose birthing plan and then, you know, seeing what's going to happen and maybe getting some extra support, you know, in the run up to it. So in Ireland, for example, I know there are a lot of doulas that are offering um, online therapies and sessions for free in this current climate to just talk people through it and help them with their anxieties and there are loads of antenatal classes online and different things that you can do to prepare yourself and I think that's the most important thing now that we should all be preparing ourselves for whatever is going to come. Absolutely and I, I, I feel like in this kind of situation knowledge is power. Absolutely. And just getting as much knowledge Absolutely. as you can as to yeah. what things are going to look like so you can visualize it before it happens yeah. for me personally is key um and I'm sure it is for a lot of other people as well so you're yeah. not shocked there are no uh, shocked by what you see and I remember in our antenatal class we did um if you end up going in for an emergency um c-section you and all of the people that that would be in the room and everyone everyone kind of was an independent person I'm not explaining this very well but just to understand and give us a visualization of actually how many people would be standing around you that really helped for me I mean I didn't need to have one but it was nice to know that that would be the case rather than feeling shocked that there would be that many people in the room because there's a lot more than you expect in the room all around you while you're lying there naked yeah it's good to be prepared absolutely yeah absolutely exactly oh thank you and so much and I think much they'll, they'll be very accommodating to mm. all of that you know that like they, they have to understand how stressful a time this is um so I think they'll be very accommodating and try to help in any way they can and I imagine when you get to go home um with your newborn you then need to self-isolate um yeah so there's no real guidance around it um but yes you know certainly I will be taking my first six weeks and I won't really be leaving the house Mm. um yeah I will be taking it very easy and spending the time in bed and and not doing a huge amount yeah Mm. I mean for the there isn't there isn't any specific advice around that that I have read anywhere yet Mm. okay yeah Shall we move on to some more general questions um, yes. and try and answer those as quickly as we can? Because I know um, I know you have places to be as well. Um, so let's do. Here we go. Where can we go? Can we still see our dentists at this time? That's oh, a good question. Yeah. So um, I don't know what the guidance came out in the UK is. Um, Dental procedures are aerosol producing procedures. And what that means is that if you have COVID-19, it will spread it um, Mm. a lot. So no, routine dental procedures should be cancelled at this time. I'm not sure that there's been specific guidance to say that in the UK or not. Um, But certainly in Ireland, that is what they are saying. Um, The issue with this is that um, you can have COVID-19 
and you could be virally shedding it. So it could be present in your throat and you wouldn't have symptoms yet. Mm. And so you would put the dentist at increased risk or anyone else in the room at increased risk. So as much as possible, no, I was due to get my, my teeth cleaned and a, and a checkup before the final stages of pregnancy. So that that, that shouldn't happen now. Okay. Yeah. Um, exercise after a C-section. What's the advice around that? Um, so again, you would need to check in with your own GP and see. Most will say back to exercise around six weeks with certainly mm-hmm. some light exercise um, and basing it on what you did prior to your C-section as well. But I would want to get the all clear with GPs at the six-week check before doing anything. And six-week checks certainly here in Ireland are still going ahead. That's a really important um, GP appointment. Okay, that's good to yeah. know. Um, this is kind of, this is along similar lines uh, after mm. a second degree tear um what would you advise and this is quite personal isn't it let me know if you don't want to answer this one but advice around going running postnatally would that be again six week check yeah definitely and at the gp you know as a gp i wouldn't necessarily feel 100 percent comfortable advising you on that either mm. you know if you were my patient and I would be getting checked in with the obstetrician or a women's health physio to make sure that everything is healing back there. Again, it's up to you and how you feel about it and if you feel you're ready. Um, but I would be starting with light exercise, certainly not before the six weeks and, and kind of going from there. But that's not really my area of expertise either. I, I would be definitely checking in with the women's health physio to make sure. Okay. Uh, Chickenpox vaccine, yes or no? <laughs> Yay for me. I've given it to both my children um, for a couple of different reasons. Um, Chickenpox is a nasty illness. It can cause encephalitis, um, which is inflammation of the parts of the brain. Um, I have a follower whose child had a stroke with it um, at at the age of three. So personally, and when I worked on PEDS, the consultants were giving their children, they had given all their kids um, the chickenpox vaccine as well. The other side of it is if they get it, they need to be out of work for two weeks. I would struggle with that working as a doctor to get Mm. two weeks off to mind them. Um, And it's just a nasty disease personally. So that's my recommendation. It's not in the guidance, obviously, in the UK or Ireland. They give it in the States. Right. Is I think it's in the States. I have a, a highlight saved on my Instagram stories for it. Um, in the States, they do give it. There, there's lots of talk of bringing it in here every now and then. But then there's issues when you get on later in life, certainly if you're pregnant and a woman and you don't have any immunity, um, it can cause issues for you. So, um, yeah, I, I've given it to both my girls. That's the, and that's the spiel that I give my patients when they ask me. And is it life worth considering? Is it lifelong? Possibly. Right. I guess we don't know because it's fairly new. Absolutely. Yeah. Unfortunately. So, like for me, what I would be doing with my two Harper and Indy, I would be getting their immuno levels, immunoglobulin levels checked. You know, when they get to twenty twenty five, telling right. them to get it done prior to them starting to have thinking about having children and then and make a decision based on that then but that's ages away yet but for now I don't want them to get at the chicken box so I, I've decided to give it to them and then potentially when they're that age they can have a booster or something like that absolutely yeah absolutely right. but we don't know that yet yeah. And then a lot of other people do talk, so to give both sides of it, if you get chicken pox later in life, it can be a more severe disease so um, and a severe course, I suppose. So there's that to think about. But um, And so they're, they're the kind of 
and the information you have to give people when they're deciding on it. Yes, yeah. So again, a very individual decision, really. Absolutely, yeah. Um, folic acid. Yes, hugely important. Uh, in Ireland, the guidelines are that everyone of childbearing age should be on it. Fifty percent of pregnancies are unplanned uh, worldwide. So, and often if it's an unplanned pregnancy, you might not find out until it's too late, and then you're at increased risk of neural tube defects. So. Um, the guidance here is that everyone should be on 400 micrograms of folic acid every day. There's a higher dose, five um, milligram dose, if you suffer with certain conditions such as um, diabetes, um, epilepsy, and you're on anti-epileptics, or if you are um, have increased rate, weight or an increased BMI over 30, I think you should be on a higher dose. Hugely important. And if you find out that you are pregnant, say, I don't know, five weeks, six weeks in, and you haven't been taking it, um, obviously very important to get on it straight away. But if Absolutely. you haven't been taking it, taking it is is that a huge issue? Um, Hard I to say. The yeah, the development of the neural tube is, is done early on um, in embryonic development and it's fully formed by kind of 10 to 12 weeks so you only need to take it up until that stage of pregnancy right it's hard to know like there's a multitude of factors involved in neural tube defects not just folic acid but there's a genetic interplay as well so you know that's all you can do all you can do is take it as soon as you find out if you if you haven't been kind of proactive and taking it beforehand that's why the advice is here in ireland to say that you should, everyone should be on it and I saw a bunch of posts a while ago now about plant-based folic acid versus uh, like the yes. tablets. Mm, um, yeah. Is there anything you can share on that? Do you know methylfolate versus folic acid? That's the, the one. methylfolate is easier. Um, it doesn't have to be... Um, oh, God, what's the, the right word? It doesn't have to be kind of changed in the blood to be into the active form. Right. Um, whereas folic acid does. So there is some, there are some suggestions to suggest that methylfolate is better than folic acid. But in the UK and Ireland, the guidance is still folic acid. Mm -hmm. so, okay. yeah. so last question, which you might be able to share some personal experience on, seeing as you've had two kiddos. Um, advice on stopping night feeds. Oh, God. <laughs> um <clears throat> tough isn't it, it so is. personally actually the way I did it personally I just went cold turkey um with both of my two and I used um Sudafed which is pseudoephedrine which helps to dry up milk um that's one of the side effects of it I used that over a period of three or four days um, and just decreased it down and, and I had them moved on to bottles um, mm -hmm. but both of my kids were kind of both of them were kind of finished with night feeds at that stage. I was getting six to eight, maybe eight hours out of them. It's all about reducing it down and spreading the time out, you know, over a prolonged period of time. But I've never been really good at that. I like to just get stuff done um, promptly, kind of. So um, I don't know, yeah, sp spreading out time, uh, spreading out the time between the feeds. You know, when they get to a certain stage, there, there's certain amounts the baby should be getting in all the time. And if they're hitting that requirement during the day, then they don't need feeds at night time. So if you can push through them waking up and settle them back to sleep without giving them a feed, then that would be the way to start it. Mm. 
that's great advice I'm not great on that uh, to be honest that was great advice thank you is there (laughs) anything else that you would like to share to listeners whether it be coronavirus based or not um whilst you're here yeah I think good question (laughs) I think look with uh, I spoke about it on my stories last night and I mentioned it to you before we started recording Uh, coronavirus it's a scary time um, and I think it's okay to be scared and mm-hmm. um, accept that and then realize, you know, I have a cry every morning, as I was saying to you, and I just, it ends up happening. I just get a bit overwhelmed in the car on the way to work. And then I realized that actually I have the power to protect myself and my loved ones from this. If I just stay home, stay safe, I can do so much. So, oh, accept the situation that we're living in. Um, be prepared, you know, arm yourself with knowledge or if you find it too much, take time out, you know, don't be on your phone the whole time. Don't be listening to the news reports and the media reports and don't be listening to these people who are telling you that you can take a vitamin C supplement and it's going to protect you. Yeah. Um, You know, we, as mums especially, are precious and we got to do everything that we have to do for ourselves and our baby and don't be afraid to do that. Well, I just want to finish by saying a huge, huge thank you for everything that you do, for everything that the HSC is doing, the NHS are doing for all of us. I really, and I think everyone appreciates that you're very much putting yourselves on the front line and putting your own health at risk to help um, the rest of us. So thank you so much. And thank you for all of your incredibly informative updates on your social media. If you don't yet follow... Um, Laura then do could you just share your Instagram handle for everybody yes it's Dr Laura GP um, on Instagram and there's lots of highlights there on pregnancy and coronavirus and and everything else that we've discussed today Mm. thank you so much Laura thank you Emma that was great